You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. Great to be with you. And if you are new, I want to add my voice to say welcome. It's great to have you with us this morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's really our joy to have you worshiping with us. Before I jump into the text this morning, I want to make a little uh, very brief announcement that was made in about an hour uh, on Monday night, but I'll make it in 90 seconds or so, two minutes maybe. And that is we had an informational meeting this last Monday night. Uh, We followed that up by sending out the video to everyone um, in the church with uh, what we covered there. Uh, If you're a guest and and have been coming to the church and would like that, if you'd contact our office, we'd send you the video as well. You're certainly welcome to watch it. And in there, uh, we communicated that uh, we were putting forward two new deacon candidates uh, on the video. We explained their ministry. We explained their reasoning why. Today, I'm just going to explain their name. Uh, and be, uh, be very brief uh, about that. But uh, first is uh, Yuri Shin, who has worked in our city outreach, connecting us throughout the city. So we've uh, put her forward as deacon of uh, city outreach. Are you in here, Yuri? I don't know if you're in the second service, first service. If you are, stand up. Y- Yuri, right back here. Let's welcome her. There's Yuri. Thank you. Thank you for all that you do in connecting us throughout the city, and it's on on the video we communicated. It's really quite a bit. The second is Tom Stack, who serves at Bethesda, along with his wife. He serves at Bethesda Gardens, overseeing our ministry uh, to uh, the the, uh, elderly that are in that assisted living facility just up the street, and they coordinate, uh, among other things, a worship service for them every Sunday morning. And uh, so Tom has been doing that for, I don't know, 10 or 11 years. So Tom Stack is our deacon, uh, proposing him as a deacon to serve over at um, Bethesda Garden. So Tom, I know where you are. Would you stand up? Let's welcome Tom as well. And then the other thing we mentioned was we commented on one of our deacons, uh, F.J. O'Leary, who has served uh, as the deacon of mercy ministry for us for the last four years and has really done a great job. Over the last four years, as he has cared for numbers of folks um, who have needed, uh, he oversees a, uh, our benevolence fund uh, and the, with financial review committees involved in, in all of that, but uh, he oversees our benevolence fund caring for those who are in need. And as he's done that over the last four years, we've seen significant, really significant pastoral uh, ability and gifting, significant wisdom gifting, um, a significant ability to take the scripture and apply it uh, to people's lives as he has done there and as we've sought his counsel and various things. It's been a real help to us. Uh, so he's continuing. He's not stepping down for that. At this point, he's continuing that, uh, but he's also taking on a responsibility of being an intern, a pastoral intern with us as well. So he's kind of doing both there. And uh, so uh, FJ, would you stand up as well? Let's welcome FJ as well. Thank the Lord for him. 
So uh, here's the procedure at this point. You'll receive an email, I think today, if you're a member of the church. In that email, uh, there will be a form where you could register uh, your support or raise a concern about the two deacon candidates. FJ's already been through this vetting process, but for Yuri and Tom, it's an opportunity for our church to, um, you know, to be involved in the affirmation process of our deacons, which is so important. So you'll receive a form if you know them. Uh, we invite your comment. Uh, and you will also receive a link to a teaching on deacons. So we did a teaching on uh, deacons a number of years ago, and uh, we'll send that to you so you can listen to that. We're asking you to affirm their character quality. These are not popularity contests or running for class office or something like that. Uh, This is simply an affirmation of do you feel this person uh, fulfills the uh, character qualifications for a deacon. So you'll receive that, and we'll ask that you respond within the next three weeks, and then we'll get back with you at that point. So it's an exciting time for us uh, as a church and for those individuals who have served faithfully uh, and we're very grateful for their ministry. Okay, today we are in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're only going to cover a few verses, uh, verses 8 through 12. So if you would turn uh, in your Bibles there, 1 Peter 3 verses 8 through 12. This is God's word to us. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good Days, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You know, the, the word calling is used, or to be called, is used in differing ways in Christianity. In the tradition I grew up in, and this would be common, uh, speaking of someone having a calling on their life referred to specifically a calling to some type of ministry. They were called to be a minister, a pastor, a missions, a missionary. Maybe they were even called to missions. It was often spoke of that way. So that's one way it's used. Another way it's used is to speak of a Christian. The New Testament speaks of those who know Jesus as the called, that God has called them. So, for instance, Romans 8 says, those whom he foreknew, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in that situation, to be called simply means to be called by God uh, into the kingdom to be a Christian. During the Reformation period, especially under the influence of Martin Luther, uh, calling began to be spoken of in a broader way uh, in that uh, the Latin word where we, uh, for calling is the word we get, we get vocation. It comes from the Latin for calling. So in the Reformation, there was talk about everyone having a calling, that uh, you, if you were married, you had a calling as a husband, you had a calling as a wife, you had a calling as a parent, you have a calling to work. 
to your job, you have a calling to be a neighbor, you have a calling to be a citizen. So we could look at life with all of these various callings from God, all equal, clergy, breaking down the clergy-laity distinction and saying everyone is called to these various roles and we are to live out all of our callings uh, for the glory of God. This text speaks of calling too, and I think it's a way of speaking of calling that perhaps we've given very little thought to. This text calls us to the goal of all of our callings, and it says that we are called to be a blessing, called to bless. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Peter is writing to people who are living on the margins. They are being culturally resisted for their faith in Jesus. They are being persecuted uh, with uh, slander, uh, gossip, a breaking up, perhaps, of relationships. Some are being shunned from their families. Some people may have lost their spouse over their conversion to Christianity. So they're experiencing all of these trials. And Peter makes this profound statement to them that as they live on the margins, they are called to bless people. In their minority status, they're called to bless as those who are legitimately being oppressed, I know that, use, that word's used in a lot of different ways today, but they are legitimately being oppressed without question, and he calls the oppressed to bless other people, called to be a blessing. And he makes it clear here that we are called to bless others and so receive the blessing of God ourselves. Do you think of your role that way? Do you, do you ever think that I am called wherever I go to be a blessing? I remember this a profound memory I have. It, it came up this week when I read this text of a guy I knew back, I was probably mid-20s, and I remember this guy saying to me, I don't know if he was looking for a job or something, but I remember him saying to me that I feel like God's plan is that wherever we go as Christians, we're to be a blessing. And so when I go into a job interview, I am just thinking, not in an arrogant way at all, wouldn't verbalize this, but in his soul, he's thinking, Lord, if you call me here, I am called to be a blessing. Wherever I go, like Joseph, he said, no matter what happened to Joseph, he was a blessing. He, he, you know, he was obviously sold by his brothers and then was, was bought, ultimately was in the household of Potiphar, and he was a blessing to Potiphar. Uh, something happened there. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He was thrown into jail. He was a blessing in jail. He was interpreting dreams and, and speaking the word of God to others. Well, from there, uh, he was brought before uh, the, the uh, ruler of Egypt, and he was second in command in the entire nation and was a blessing, providing food in times of famine. Wherever he went, God used him as a blessing. I remember this guy telling me, that's what I want for my life. Wherever I go, I want to be a blessing. Whether I'm in jail, whether I'm persecuted, or whether I'm the second one in command in the entire country. And it's always stuck with me. Well, that's what Peter is telling these people who are marginalized. They're called to bless others. And in the text, we're going to see they're called to bless both with their attitudes and with their actions. First of all, their attitudes. Look at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, 
brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Finally, well, that's because he's saying finally because this is concluding the section we've been at at the last in the last two weeks, which has stretched us, pressed us, poked us. Uh, the last couple of sections we've looked at, they have to do with submitting in our culture, and it, it has to do with uh, if you the, the calling of God to submit that that's how we are to represent Him in our hostile world. So he's addressed citizens, he's addressed servants, he's addressed wives, he's addressed husbands. But this, he says, finally, all of you, what he's saying here applies to everyone called to be a blessing to those around them and especially to those in the church. This first verse really applies, I think, to people in the church. For all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Well, having unity, he's speaking to the church. Um, Having brotherly love, familial love, he's speaking to the church. And so in this section, he's communicating to these marginalized believers the importance of living in unity and living in love with one another. And that's because the church is to be a refuge. The church is to be a place of rest. The church is to be a place of safety and peace. In their day, uh, the church was to be an island of encouragement in a sea of daily resistance. It was the island of acceptance surrounded by a sea of rejection. This is what the church was to be. And yet, this is not always the case, especially in environments like this. Because what can happen is the pressure of persecution can be so strong that it begins to poison relationships with one another in the church. We've not experienced in our country what they were experiencing. But the little we've experienced in the past couple of years, we saw that the pandemic, which produced an outward pressure, brought division among many Christians, and strongly affected churches. Do you see that? This verse, this this language right here is what we've needed to hear for the last couple of years. Have unity of mind. Have sympathy. Have a tender heart. Have a humble mind. Often the very opposite was the case in so many places, so many churches, among so many Christian families, among within the family itself. There were differences. There were cultural divisions outside the church. Cultural divisions on race and politics and COVID and what you thought about COVID. And those divisions were then brought into the church so that it didn't feel like a refuge. It didn't feel like a place of rest or safety for some people. It felt like this is no different than what I'm experiencing out there. And so Peter, keenly, obviously inspired by the Spirit, aware of that, is addressing these marginalized people and saying, look, this is how you should relate to one another. Three general attitudes. He speaks of unity, love, and humility. So the first two attitudes, if we could call them that, have to do with the mind. The first one is unity of mind, and the last one is humble mind. And the middle three have to do with love. We might say uh, how we feel. The, 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 the bookends, the first and last, are about how we think. 
The middle three, which I'm calling love, are about how we feel. They are sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart. So those are love, and then unity and humility are the bookends of that list. So I'm going to look at each of them with you. First of all, have unity of mind. We're called to think in a unified way. As believers in a hostile culture, it was vital that they had one mind. He's not arguing for uniformity, where everyone looks the same, dresses the same, uses the same insider lingo or something like that. He's saying, rather, in the midst of whatever you bring into the church, whatever secondary differences you may have, make sure that you are in unity of your mind on the centrality of the gospel the person of Christ, the kingdom of God. Make sure you are unified there. In other words, don't allow the things that sort of differentiate you to divide you. Uh, We could say the same for us today. Take our differences socially, culturally. We have many cultural differences and backgrounds in Grace Church. Politically, racially, economically, age differences, you know, generational differences. Put all those aside and be of one mind unified around the gospel. Because when we are unified around the gospel, it positions us to bless one another when the gospel is central and it makes the gospel accessible to outsiders. The challenge for our witness in the past couple years is that people read on social media or even in the news at points or talking to their friends And they say, the chaos out there, I visited a church and snooped around a little bit, it was just as chaotic. There was no difference. No difference in how they related. But when we are united around the gospel and and take secondary things and make them secondary, even if they're very important, uh, this, this, this makes all the difference to make the church a refuge, and to make the church a light in the darkness. Listen, when I think about what I think he's addressing and what's gone on the past couple years, if I was the enemy, hold your thoughts, if I was the enemy, this is the very strategy I would employ. I would put pressure from without on believers and divide them within, and that you will conquer the church. Now, Jesus says his church won't be conquered, but you would conquer, that would, you would do uh, great damage to the church. If they're rejected on the outside and they come among the people of God, brothers and sisters bought by the blood of Jesus, divided there as well, well then you just check out. And tens of thousands have in the past couple of years. And let's not for a minute say that's all on them. They're responsible before the Lord if they've checked out. So they are responsible before the Lord. But in many times, the church has produced a stumbling block for people because the gospel hasn't been central. All of the other things that I mentioned on the division list and others have been central. So have unity of mind, he says. Uh, One of the things that I think is important about this as well is that we don't even just have unity within our four walls, but we have unity with other believers in Christ as well. That's another reason I think the strategy of the enemy is so effective, because when the pressure is stronger on the outside, we need a greater unified people of God in this country to stand for righteousness, to represent Jesus broadly together. 
one of the great privileges I have in everything I do, I don't talk much about this at all, but one of the great privileges I have is to be a part of a, a group of pastors, um, lead pastors of churches in the city. If I told you the churches, you'd know them. Uh, they're the ones you know in, in the church, many of them. They're lead pastors we gather, and I'm, I've been tasked with facilitating that group. And so we meet together, and it is absolutely one of the highlights of my, we meet monthly, it's a highlight of my month because we're learning from one another, we're listening, we're for one another. There's not a competition church between church. There is a unique spirit in the city of Frisco among leaders uh, that are non-competitive and are for the gospel. I, I haven't seen many places like that. We have differences on all kinds of stuff. We don't, we don't sit down and just make that our topic. Sometimes we joke about it. But that, we have differences on all kinds of things. But when it comes to the lordship of Jesus Christ and his kingdom and all of us wanting to see our city and connecting cities reached with the gospel, we are in 100% agreement. And so that is a beautiful thing, and I wonder if the Lord's going to use that as leaders or various leaders unified around the gospel. So we not only need that, but you need that with your other Christian friends as well, that we're seeking to cultivate unity, not nitpick, but cultivate unity around the centrality of Jesus. Unity of mind works through love. So the next three things have to do with love. Finally, have a unity of mind and sympathy. Have sympathy. A related word would be empathy. Empathy is maybe a bit stronger word in the way we use it, but here it uses the word sympathy. So in order for us to be unified, we need to have a sympathetic heart of love for one another. Sympathy means to feel with or to experience with That's literally what it means. It's looking outside of ourselves to understand the experiences of others. Looking outside of ourselves to see the experiences of others, because this is how Christ treats us. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Sympathy is living out Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That is, get outside yourself, and if someone else is celebrating, celebrate as if it's your victory. And if someone else is weeping, cry as if it's your sorrow. This is what the church is called to, sympathy. We're called to bless by entering into the experience of others so that I bear their burdens. As a matter of fact, this is how the husband's to relate to the wife. Look up one verse in verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, sympathetic way, experiencing with, feeling with. It starts with listening to one another, asking questions about another person's life, seeking to understand them, realizing that my little perspective, which is very narrow and very small, needs to be informed by the perspective and experience of other believers that I'm joined with in the church. So have sympathy for one another, is what he says. Another privilege that I've had, besides the meeting I just told you about, uh, is to participate in, we don't really have a good name for them, I'll just call them diversity dinners. So based on the class we did on race this past summer, we broke the group group up into those who wanted to participate into uh, diverse groups, uh, racially diverse groups, and then we meet together once a month for dinner. 
believing that where racial unity really takes place is around the dinner table, learning about one another and becoming friends uh, with one another. So this last Thursday night, we met at somebody's house. They provided a wonderful meal, and then we had a discussion, and I asked this question. What are some of the various barriers to racial unity in our church? What would you say are some of the barriers or potential barriers to racial unity in our church? And one of the first things someone said was empathy. Sympathy, that, that's a barrier. When I only see things from my cultural point of view and I don't cross cultural lines in love seeking to understand someone else's point of view. Unity is intimately connected to sympathy. Matter of fact, I don't believe you can have true biblical unity if you don't have people who carry a heart for one another in sympathy. Second attitude of love is brotherly love, he says. Brotherly love. It's affection of the family. We have brotherly love for one another in the church because of the gospel. Christ died and rose that we could, uh, so that we would be born again and we would be in his family. Adopted adopted by the Father. And so to be a part of a church isn't to be a part of a club. It isn't to be uh, participants in a service organization. It's to be in a family. And that's why he uses the word brotherly. It's inclusive. It means brotherly or sisterly. Uh, It means familial. Uh, But brotherly love is what we are called to. Many of these original readers had probably lost family relationships over their faith. Uh, there'd probably been wives whose husbands left them because they were no longer adopting the religion of their husband. There may have been parents that broke relationship with their adult children over their faith. And so they may have lost, have been isolated from familial love, and now they're brought into a new family. How important is that? How important is family, the church's family, in a culture that is hostile to the gospel. It's all the more important. All the more important. It's always a need, but especially in times of persecution. So really, we want to be asking ourselves, how can I be family to someone else in the church? How can I express brotherly, sisterly love to someone else? The question mustn't be, am I included, or do I feel connected, but... Whom am I seeking to include? Who am I connecting with so that they experience family? Who am I helping to feel connected? That's brotherly love. Brotherly love. The third attitude of love is a tender heart. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. Sometimes it's translated kind-heartedness. It means to be kind towards one another. Thoughtful, patient, loving. You know, it's interesting, Paul ties this term, um, tender heart, a tender heart, Paul ties it to forgiveness, Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So one way we kindly bless others is by loving them, loving them. We become tender hearted as we become more aware of how God has loved us, as he's been tender hearted towards us. So, we're called to bless our brothers and sisters with attitudes of unity, 
with attitudes of love. The subpoints are sympathy, brotherly love, and tender heart. And lastly, humility. You see the last thing there in the list. A humble mind. A humble mind. Each of us, each of us must have a humble mind if we're to experience a unity of mind. A humble mind isn't a mind that looks down on oneself. Humility is not about self-hatred. Humility is about self-forgetfulness. The humble mind looks away from self and puts the interest of others before one's own interest. That's what Philippians 2 says of Jesus, that we're to imitate his humility. William Harrell, in his commentary uh, on 1 Peter about this verse, wrote, Those who are humble in spirit are neither high-minded nor easily offended, nor self-centered. Instead, the humble in spirit are oriented towards a loving service to others. I thought that was so helpful. We would often say humility is not being high-minded, for sure. We get that. It's not being self-centered. Maybe we get that. But his third characteristic, I'm not sure if we get, not easily offended. The humble person is not easily offended. It is the proud person that as a chip on his or her shoulder that's just looking to react in anger to someone else, looking to, to be dissed, just looking with everybody's, you know, that kind of attitude. That's not a humility. Humility is loving and believing the best of others. It is at times oversaking, uh, I'm not oversaking, overlooking, at times overlooking an offense. That, that's humility. That's humility. Being humble in mind. Humility is always a blessing to others. I've never, never felt like, man, that person's humble. It's so, it does, it's so irritating. It just it, it harms everyone around her that she puts God first, others second. I mean, it's just it's so devastating. That she, no, humility is life. It brings life because it sees God as he really is, as supreme. It sees Jesus Christ and his work as the center of our attention and affections, which affects our heart to then love one another. When there's humility of mind, there can be unity of mind. Where there's humility and love, well, that is a setup for unity, and that's what he is talking about here. But it's not just blessing with attitudes. They're also to bless with their actions. And in the next verses, there's three actions. Three actions. I know these are a lot of points today, but really it's just two. We're called to bless with our attitudes, called to bless with our actions. The first action is non-retaliation. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So if someone does something evil to us, how do we get back at them? We bless them. We're not getting back at them. We bless them. That's what it says. Now, what I'm going to say in the next few minutes is the most radical ethic and like the last two weeks, we're all going to come up, be trying to come up with 15 exceptions. Let's let the Bible say what it says. Let's just let God have his word rather than our 15 exceptions to start with. This is so counterintuitive. If someone speaks abusively to me, that's what revile means, to speak abusively. If someone speaks abusively to us, we don't speak the same way back is what he's saying. Look at chapter 2, verse 23 previous chapter, 
When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when Jesus was spoken of with evil, he didn't respond with evil. He trusted God who would judge justly. That's what we are to do as well. We're called to bless means we don't respond sinfully to those who sin against us. This is the same language that we get in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 38, You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. Speaking about this, Karen Jobes in her commentary on 1 Peter says, so understood, meaning that we understand uh, not reviling, not doing evil to those who do evil to us, so understood the Christian response of non-retaliation would be startling within that culture. It's startling in our culture too. Peter instructs Christians to forego the usual verbal retaliation that would be necessary to successfully defend one's honor and reputation of one's community. Given the tendency of human nature to retaliate, coupled with the social expectation to do so, the Christian who refrains from verbal retaliation and instead offers blessing would give unbelievers pause. That's the goal is to represent Jesus for his honor and to a watching world. She says here that this call to not revile, especially when one's honor is being challenged, to not revile, that is, to not respond with the same anger, hatred, vitriol, the same judgment, not to to respond not in that way that you have been treated would give everyone pause because it seems crazy. The same is true in our world today, absolutely. Let me give you one example of where this is needed, that we don't respond with evil or with reviling words. We don't speak unkindly to others when they speak unkindly to us. And that's political discourse. And yes, I'm going to go there briefly. Political discourse. We need discernment in our politically polarized world One of the good things about today is both the left and the right are so incredibly different than the kingdom of God that the kingdom is standing out a little bit more. You start acting like this, it's going to stand out because the right and the left neither really respond in this way. I saw a clip of a speech that was given This one happened to be at a conservative political event. I could have seen a speech at a liberal, progressive political event as well. This is the one I saw, so this is the one I will share. The speaker, you would all know the speaker. Um, The event was for young, not theological, but politically conservative people. And the, the person who organized the event is an overt Christian, very strong in his testimony of what he believes about Jesus. The event was not overtly Christian, but there was plenty of young evangelicals there, given probably the guy who led the whole thing, and given the fact that so many evangelicals would, would attend an event like this. The speaker was lamenting the left and the way the left uses cancel culture. And this was his response 
to what he described as the left's use of the cancel culture. He said, this will be contrary, what I'm about to say, will be contrary to a lot of our beliefs because I'd love not to have to participate in cancel culture. I'd love that it didn't exist, but as long as it does, folks, we better be playing the same game. Okay, that's enough to pause on, but he goes on. We've been playing t-ball for half a century while they, the left, are playing hardball and cheating, right? He says. We've turned the other cheek, and I understand sort of the biblical reference, but it's gotten us nothing. It's gotten us nothing. Well, thankfully, he put his cards on the table. I appreciate this speaker putting his cards on the table because he is saying we must move beyond the ethics of Jesus. And I hear this sentiment more and more. We're in a different time, and the ethics of Jesus don't count. I understand there's a difference in national policy and the Sermon on the Mount. I I get that point. But he's speaking to individuals and saying what we need to do is treat others who cancel us. You need to be doing the exact same thing. They speak evil of you, you speak evil of them. We've been playing t-ball. That's Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, that's t-ball. We need to be playing hardball. They play hardball and cheat. What are we doing? That's what he said. When the ends justify the means, Christians will be nodding along to folks saying the ethics of Jesus don't count anymore, and we better wake up when that happens and say the ethics of Jesus absolutely matter. Luke 6, 27, 28, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Those words have to mean something. They have to mean something. And I could give an example on the left, many examples. Uh, The whole argument was the left's canceling people. That in itself's wrong. So I could be giving examples on the left, but this is one where a bunch of evangelicals are gathered. That has to mean something in the way we respond when people curse us and speak evil against us and revile us. We must not revile in return. We must not say we're playing the same game. The kingdom doesn't play the same game as the world. The the ethics of Jesus have gotten us nothing. Why did he say that? Because what is something? The something is power. That's what he wants. And the ethics of Jesus say that when you are marginalized, what did Jesus do? You bless and you change the world by providing a counterintuitive example of light in the darkness so that your coworker, your friends, your company that canceled you or spoke against you, they see your response in return and go, wow, I would never respond that way. If they said that to me, I would have come out swinging. But look how he responded. That's a testimony that Jesus lives in you and you're not of the world. This is rank worldliness to say I'm going to act like others and treat them like they treat me. There is no more anti-Christian ethic than playing the same game as the world, whether you're on the right or the left. It does not matter. The kingdom of God is different. So we must we must never live by the ends justify the means. The means are how we live daily. 
and we must consider that. Well, I'm going to wrap up very quickly. Godly speech. So he says, do not revile when you're reviled. Do not speak against others when they speak against you. Don't act the same way. Uh, Let them turn from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, it says. So we are to use uh, godly speech. Keep your, I'm sorry, up a verse. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So we don't lie about others. Godly speech, we don't uh, gossip or slander others. We don't disrespect others. We don't use coarse jokes. Uh, we don't mock others with our speech in an evil sort of way to defame them or degrade them. We don't, we don't participate in sinful grumbling and complaining, but we keep our tongue from evil. We're to speak words of gratitude. Listen, that doesn't mean that we don't speak up or correct anyone. There is a way to confront and there is a way to critique. There is a way to rebuke that is motivated by love and that has the essence of trust in God around it. It's a different approach, but there is. So we are to stand for truth. But whenever we stand for truth, we always do it with godly speech. We always do it with a heart that aims for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. And that's what's different, that we don't oppose a different worldview in the same way that we are opposed. We bring it in a different way. And that's what he's after here. Don't speak deceitfully. Keep your tongue from evil. And lastly, do good, verse 11. Do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Turn from evil and do good. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and he's listening to answer their prayers. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. What does a blessing of the enemy, of an enemy, someone who curses you, look like? It's probably all three of the things that we've looked at. It's choosing not to retaliate in the same way, treat them in the same way they treat us. That's the first thing. It's choosing to avoid sinful speech about them, about the others who slander us. We don't slander in return. And it's actively doing them good, whatever that looks like. doesn't mean agreeing with them. doesn't mean compromising and doing the same thing that they're doing. doesn't mean muting any of the truth of the gospel. doesn't mean not saying standing up for righteousness and for the rights of others and for the Lord Jesus Christ most of all. It just means we don't do it the same way they do it. And that is a very hard thing because we live in a world where the speech and the digital speech online is so, well, the popular word is toxic, right? But it's a good word. It's toxic. It's so toxic that we just live in it, and now it's the air we breathe. Once you breathe toxic air for a while, maybe when you first breathed it, you coughed and everything, but you get used to it after a while. And we're just breathing the toxic air of reviling people left and right. Karen Job says again, uh, this is a longer quote, but I thought it was helpful. She said, when faced with unjust insult and evil, Peter's readers must decide whether to respond in kind, play the same game, out of the old nature and perpetuate strife or to demonstrate the power of God's grace through radically new conduct. Although Peter is primarily addressing insults and verbal abuse coming from those outside the church, sadly, all too often, members within the Christian community become entangled in the downward spiral of insult for insult and evil for evil. 
The psalm cited is, that's Psalm 34 he cites in the passage, is a reminder that God's face has always been against those who do evil, whether that evil is perpetrated by members of the covenant community or by those outside. Therefore, the Christian's choice is how to respond to others in every situation is a choice whether to be blessed by God or opposed by God. Each such choice is a microcosm of life or death. To this you were called, don't revile, but bless. To this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. The favor of the Lord will be on the church and on our lives in an increasingly way. The light will shine brighter when we learn to bless uh, as Jesus blessed. So two questions for you, and then we're going to wrap up. How can you cultivate love and unity in our church? So who, what is God calling you to do with a neighbor on the chair next to you or in your small group or that you serve with at Grace Kids or uh, that's in the men's study or the ladies' Bible study with you, however you relate with them. What can you do that would cultivate love and unity towards others in our church? It, it might start with just asking questions of someone who's different, getting to know them, spending time with them. And number two, is anyone outside the church opposing you? If so, how can you bless them? If someone outside the church is opposing you, how can you not respond in kind? You may need to respond and say something for sure. You may. But how can you do that? I'm saying you don't need to respond in kind. You may need to respond, just not in kind is what I meant to say. But how can you bless them? How can I cultivate love and unity in our church? How can I bless someone outside? Called to bless with our attitudes and our actions. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.